you guys have a Bible, you can open up to Mark chapter 9. Uh, thank y'all for having me. I love Charlottesville. This is me and my wife's like third time probably. Uh, we love it up here. Don't let this man Justin fool you, y'all. Back in college, he was a hooper. If you have not played basketball with him, this dude is an athlete. He's a competitor. Whether you're playing Monopoly, a card game, or I don't know, stacking these chairs in here, he's going to try to win, okay? Uh, it's one of the things I love about Justin, so I, I learn a lot from him. I'm getting to know Pastor Josh better. Man, that dude can teach, huh? He is a seriously gifted guy, and I just learned a lot from being around y'all, so we love you, but y'all didn't come to hear from me. Uh, you came to hear from God's Word, so we're going to be reading verses 1 through 13, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive in. Does that sound good? All right, let's do it. Starting in verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they please, as it is written of him. This is God's word. Y'all, Jesus is a genius teacher. He just, he's, he's just on another level. He's like the coach you've never had, a dad, a trainer. He's just kind of the combination of all of the best you could imagine, but then on another level. And part of what makes him so good is he often teaches things in a moment that he knows won't be fully digested until later. He knows it's not as simple as let me give you lesson A and then we're moving on to B. It, it don't work like that. It's more like we're kind of piecing some things together about who he is and the mission he's on at all times. And today's story is one such example of just how wise, brilliant, patient, gracious he really is. And he brought with him three people to see this and then he allows us all to see it as we uh, hear and, and read God's word. And I was, I was thinking through, like, what's the best coaching moment I can remember, just like in a movie or something like that? And what came to my mind was Remember the Titans, okay? And uh, the first time I started talking about Remember the Titans, I was a high school teacher in a past life, and I started talking about it just real nonchalant with my kids, and they were looking at me like I was crazy. I was like, y'all seen Remember the Titans? And they were like, nope. And I was like, what? <laughs> it was my first, like, kind of old man rant. I was like 22, and I was like, Y'all mean y'all didn't just grow up with whatever was on TNT? You just watched it all weekend? Like, that was your only choice was whatever one movie they picked for the whole weekend. They had no clue. They didn't know who Denzel Washington was. I was like, this is, this is hurting me right now. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, but what's so cool about this movie, y'all, if you haven't seen it, it has to do with the 1960s and 70s racial tensions. And, and Coach Boone is a new coach, and he's got his team at a, at a summer camp, and he's training them. And, man, he's just not feeling the racial dynamics and the way they're treating each other. But instead of sitting them down in a classroom and just saying, here's the lesson, 
He wakes them up at 3 a.m. He blares the horns, and he gets all of his team outside, and he said, we're going for a run. And one of his coaches thinks he's so crazy, he's like, you sure you know what you're doing? And he just grins at him, and he says, let's go. And they take off. And he goes all the way to, they go all the way to the scene of Gettysburg. It's like hours run. The, the guys are just exhausted. And then he gives them a great lesson. But, but even throughout the movie, there's moments it feels like they're taking some steps forward. And then there's moments they're taking steps back. It's like the coach knew the lesson isn't learned until the application is applied. So for the sake of, it, it's more like he, he's planting a seed he knows needs to grow instead of like a nail. You drive it in once and it's done. He knows this is going to take time to flourish. And in a similar way, uh, Jesus's method of teaching is, is often more like seeds that are growing than it is nails that are just getting hammered. He knows it's going to take some time. So in one way, it's kind of like he took Peter, James, and John on a run 2,000 years ago to show him something. But in another way, it's like we're all going on a run with him today just to kind of pick up this story and understand it. And he knows it's a seed he's planting in us that is going to grow. We're going to look at this story in three turns. We're going to look at a scene to take in a lesson to learn, and then we've got a connection to make. So the first thing we're going to talk about is a scene to take in. Verses 1 and 2 said this, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Let's get some quick context, okay? Verse 2 said, and six days later. So if you're reading your Bible, you're like, six days after what? Okay? So you just kind of got to go backwards and see the last transition, and you'll see it in chapter 8, verse 27. That was the last time in geographical marker. And two sermons ago, if you didn't listen to it, it was dope. Go check it out. Uh, it was about Peter confessing Jesus as a Messiah, okay? And that happened in Caesarea Philippi, okay? And it, it, it initiated a conversation Jesus had with Peter, with his disciples and with the crowd, kind of in three different levels. And that was last week's sermon as well. And for some reason, the, the, the people who put in the verses and the chapters, y'all know those aren't inerrant, just the words are, uh, allowed the first verse of chapter 9 is actually the conclusion to that conversation. Does that make sense? So that was the last words of what he was talking about all the way back since like 831. Are y'all tracking with me? If you track it, say I'm tracking. So the general idea is he is fulfilling some of y'all going to see the kingdom before you're gone, and then he gets transfigured before some of them, which is these three people. Are you tracking? So it's like he's fulfilling that in their very presence six days later. It's just we read it like it's happening all at once, but it took a little time to unfold, okay? So with that in mind, I want to show you three things about this scene, okay? It's glorious, it is intimate, and it's temporary. First, let's look at how glorious this scene is. The Bible says, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, so as no one on earth could bleach them. Somebody say, no one. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Did you notice only Jesus was transfigured? The other people showed up, but only Jesus was transfigured. Jesus is his own source of glory. Uh, this is a taste of what the book of Revelation talks about. You could go read it in chapter 21 that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no sun because the glory of God will be the sun and Jesus will be the lamp. He is his own source of light. There's no light switch. He is the light switch and the light. You know, like it, he, he is it. Verse three said it was his glory was radiant and intensely white. His clothes were bleached whiter than anyone on earth could bleach them. 
What is clear is that this is otherworldly glory. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature and his glory just shines. And that's literally what these three guys got to see. Verse 5 said this, And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. In verse 5, Peter called Jesus rabbi. And then in verse 7, God the Father says, this is my beloved son. He's like, who you call a rabbi, that's my son. Let's not get it twisted. And then Peter busts out three tents, okay? A tent in the, like, it's like you busting out a tent when you see Moses Elijah. That's, you know, you ever done something silly in a moment just because you didn't know what else to do? It's like, just stop. You're making it, you're making it worse. Just sit there, you know? Uh, but a tent gets at this idea of like tabernacle. Like in the Old Testament, tabernacle literally is how God chose to put his presence inside of it. So it's like Moses is basically saying, can I take that moment and put it in three jars and like lock it up? That's kind of what he was trying to do. But y'all, like a sunset that's glorious, you're not supposed to do anything. Just take it in. Just sit in it. Just behold it. When we see glory, we should sit in it. And soon we're going to see we should also listen. Second thing about this scene is it's intimate. Our first reaction to this kind of a, a glory, this, this so intense, radiant light would be to squirm a little bit. You would be like, you know, taken aback. You would be knocked off your feet. But y'all, in the Bible, when God's glory shows up, there's intimacy between God and man, not fear. The perfect example of this is Elijah and Moses, right? These two guys who show up, they are legends. They represent kind of the Old Testament story, the, the law and the prophets, and I wish I could go into deep detail. You could write down 1 Kings chapter 19 is Elijah's story. And then the whole book of Exodus, but particularly chapters 24 to 33 for Moses. But they both get extremely intimate encounters with God that involved his voice from a cloud on a mountain. So you could see how if you're a disciple with a Jewish background who knows these stories, your mind is just getting filled with nostalgia. And you're like, yo, this is crazy. Like this is happening right now, Right? With these stories in the backdrop and all of this taking place with Jesus being transfigured, what would be going through their mind is in those instances, Moses was hid behind a rock because God said, you can't see my face. Elijah put a cloth over his face and just heard a sound from God. They get to look at Jesus. They don't have to hide. They get to see him. And then the sound goes away, the light goes away, and he's standing right there. Translation, God is not off limits. He's accessible, and it's through this dude right here. That's how you get there. It's through my son. The people in the Old Testament literally had to wait at the bottom of the mountain. They're like, Moses, you go. We don't want to go. We're scared. And these guys get to look at God's son. Glory naturally feels like it should push us away because we're so unworthy. But the God of the Bible wants to bring us into his glory, not cast us away from it. Not only do we see Jesus transfigured, but we hear God the Father. And it's been a while since y'all been in Mark chapter 1, but in verse 11, a similar thing happened where the sky opened up and, and God said that you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And the spirit fell down on him like a dove. And that story said, you are my beloved son. Did y'all notice what he said right here? He said, this is my beloved son. If right now my kid walked in here and I said, you are my beloved son, am I talking to all y'all or to him? I'm talking to him. But if he walks in here and I'm like, what is he doing here? This is my beloved son. I would be talking to y'all. 
What that means is the first time God busted out the cloud and said, you are my beloved son, that moment was mainly for Jesus. This time when he says, this is my beloved son, is mainly for these three. We need this. Jesus don't need this. Are you tracking with me? We need to see something here. He didn't need this moment. Those three disciples needed this moment. In this scene, there's no small voice in a, in a, after an earthquake like with Elijah. There is no, there's nothing going on like with Moses. It's just listen to my son. The intimacy has a direction. The purpose of the moment is to get you to focus on the source of the moment, which is Jesus. God wants you to run to him. So the scene is glorious, it's intimate, but it's also temporary, right? It's there and then it's, it's gone. We just catch a glimpse and we see a glimpse of what, what we were made for to see God, to be in his presence with no fear of rejection to see him as he is. It's almost as if this moment shows Jesus as he really is. And all the other time those three guys had been with him, it was like a concealed version of the real him. Are you tracking with me? I bet my mind would have been, Jesus, are you you like the transfigured you? Is that the real you? Or is the one I see the rest of the time the real you? You know, like I bet they don't ever really see him the same again. You know, it's like he'd been concealed. You've been holding out on us. You can get transfigured like that. What's the deal? And they're, they're thinking through, you said the kingdom was coming, so this is a taste of something that one day is coming and ain't leaving, right? Have you ever been in the presence of greatness and you didn't realize it at the time? I remember I had a, a co-worker when I was a math teacher, and we, it was like our last, so, it was a social event right before the school year got going, the math department went out. This man bowled a 260 and was mad at how bad he bowled. I was like, Beckett, you can bowl a like 300? Like he was mad bowling a 260. I was like, I had no idea. I never saw him again. Every time I see him, I'll be like, my man, what you bowled this weekend, baby? You know, he busted out the glove and everything. Never saw him the same again. Yo, Jesus didn't level up in this moment. They just recognized the level he was always on. Are you tracking with that? He didn't change. My friend didn't change when I saw him bowl the 260. I just became aware of something that was always true of him, Right? It's like, it's like I caught a glimpse of the real him, right? Y'all, this is what's so crazy about Jesus. I'm just going to be honest with you. We treat him like he can't bowl. Then you find out he can bowl a 300 like it's nothing. And then you recognize the way he still chose to treat you well when you thought he couldn't do nothing, but he could bowl the 300. Are you tracking with me? So when he's on the cross, he's not like, y'all fools, y'all don't even know. I've been transfigured and it's coming back. He lets them say, you can't get off. He lets them mock him. So when, what's so cool about when you come to faith in Jesus, when you go from death to life, when you become a follower, one of my favorite things is recognizing I was so arrogant, I thought you were nothing. It's not just that he loves you, it's that he loves you, you realize how arrogant you are, and then he says, and I love that version of you, and he breaks you. And he does it over and over and over and over. You know, I realize I'm a trash husband or a bad pastor or whatever it is that I'm not what I should be. And I realize he's higher than I thought he was. And he doesn't demand I get up. He says, I already was that when you didn't know I was it. And you thought you were something and you're nothing. And I got you. It's amazing how he does that. He's so humble, so loving. And that, that power together breaks people. I love it. So a lot is probably going on in these disciples' minds. They're, they're thinking through these old stories with Elijah and Moses. They're terrified. The Bible literally said he was terrified. There's glory. There's all this stuff going on. And can you imagine when the voice went away and the light went away and they're just like, what's up, Jesus? You know, 
But why does God give us this glimpse? What is the purpose? It's got to be going through their head. Like, how do we get this back? Are you bringing this in its fullness? Like, is this like, what do we got to do to, I want this again. What, 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 what do we got to do to get this back? What's the deal? Well, I think we need to pay attention to what, what was said in that cloud. We got a lesson to learn. The Bible said, and a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Somebody say, listen to Jesus. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. It helps to remember this whole scene of the transfiguration as a reaction to Peter calling Jesus Messiah. And then when he says, I got to go suffer and die, he's like, no, you don't. All of this is a reaction to Peter saying some good things, then saying some not good things. And six days later, we get this moment, and he says, listen to him. Something for you to think about. Was there anyone on planet Earth listening to Jesus more than Peter? No. And he looks right at him and says, or the, the, the voice from the cloud says, listen to him. And there's this radiant brightness. What started with looking at Jesus becomes listen to Jesus, right? We see him in his glory, and then we're told to listen to him, and it's mundane. It went from amazing to normal. Look at him, it's amazing. Now listen to him in a normal moment. That's such a good picture for us. Look at Jesus, listen to Jesus. Look at Jesus, listen to Jesus. I want to talk for just a few minutes about the ingredients of listening to Jesus, okay? First one is this. Listening to Jesus requires decisive submission. Somebody say submission. Y'all, the, the Christian life is a lot about posture. Like, what's going on in your heart that no one can see? Like, what is the posture of your heart? And this word submission gets at the idea of bowing down. God, at the end of the day, you're there. I'm here. You're the transfigured one. I'm not. You're high. I'm low. This is not a casual listening. The reaction of Peter is terror. It's not eh. It's not, I could take it or leave it, you know? Listening to Jesus is more like a bow than it is a hmm, nod. What's some good stuff. It's more like throwing yourself on the ground than it is a tip of the hat. You know what I mean? And unbelievers, just so you know, every single Christian had a moment in their life where they were nodding and it became bowing. Or maybe they thought it was stupid and then it became nodding and then it was, I'm in and you're the greatest. And they repented of their sin and they believed in him, which is a fancy way of saying, you're the king of my life now. I want in and I want to follow you. And the good news is you can do that today. That's how the Christian life starts and God will never let you go. But believer, what starts with submission continues in submission. That's the first posture and that's our ongoing posture. Listening to Jesus never becomes casual. There is a type of listening out there that, that hedges its bet while the terms are being laid down. Meaning like, I'll hear you out, but based on how much it's going to cost me, I'll make my decision once I hear the cost. James talked about somebody who hears and doesn't do, didn't hear. Jesus said, be a hearer and a doer. He knew that relationship was, was tied together. We often say with Jesus, our yes has to be on the table. And sometimes I get annoyed because I'm like, Pastor, explain that. What that means is you take a check, you write in the signature, and you slide it across, and the other party gets to say, this is the price. But you put the yes before they listed the price. We don't do the opposite, which is you tell me the price, then I'll tell you if it's a yes. We say my yes is there because of who you are, and no matter what you ask, I'm in. That is decisive submission. It's not casual. I gladly give him the keys to my life and say, go start the car. When my flesh wants something and his will is opposite of that, I lay it down. I had this plan, but now I know your plan, and I'll 
put mine down and pick yours up. When his word says suffer well, we do it. We listen. When he says love your enemies, we listen. When his word about not being a gossip hits us right between the eyes because of how we're carrying ourselves in the workplace, we listen. We repent. We follow. When his word tells me to wait on him, I listen. When his word says trust the Lord with all your understanding, don't lean on your own understanding, I listen. I wanted this, but your word says this. I got you. I'm submitting. Doesn't mean it's easy. I don't always get why you're telling me to do that instead of this, but I got you. I'm listening. Walking with Jesus can be filled with frustration, confusion, excitement, and joy. But amongst the gamut of emotions and contexts and situations we find ourselves in, there should be one anchor. He's the king, and I listen to him. I submit to him. I'm not the king. Is there an area of your life believer that needs to go from nodding to who he is to bowing to his word? Is there an area that that he is uncovering even now? Decide to submit that to him, bring it to the surface, and follow. Second thing about listening, listening to Jesus requires constant learning and reflection. Constant. Did you notice what happened right before he told these three to listen to Jesus was Peter busted out the three tents. It's kind of like Peter was thinking, what do I got to do in this moment? And God is saying, you don't got to do nothing. You just got to listen. There's nothing to do. Just listen. These are the main guys who would start the worldwide movement of which were a product. And the one lesson they need is listen to Jesus. That's present ongoing. Like, don't one time listen. Keep listening. That's another way you could say that. You want to change the world? Listen to Jesus. We got plenty of people who speak for Jesus and not enough who keep listening to Jesus. What makes a follower of Jesus different isn't who the follower is, but who they're in proximity to. We become what we behold in the Old Testament when Moses would go up on the mountain. Y'all notice he would come back down and his face would be what? Radiant, shining. Not because he's special, but he got around something special and came back looking special. Don't focus on being different. Get around the Lord in intimate proximity, and you will be different. When we listen to him and look at him, we end up looking like him, sounding like him. We begin to embody and become an extension of him. We think his thoughts. We just kind of become an extension of him. Present, ongoing, keep listening. Listen to Jesus. No matter if you've walked with him for five minutes, five years, or 50 years, You got more to learn. That posture of learning is so crucial. Every married person should know your marriage is in trouble if you stop learning your spouse. You think you got them figured out, you're in trouble. If you're a parent, you think you got your kids figured out, you're in trouble. You're a teacher, you think you got your students figured out, you're in trouble. Keep learning. And the primary way we learn and listen in the Christian life is by reading and hearing. We have to be regularly reading and hearing God's word. If we are finding ourselves not challenged, not surprised, not caught off guard by what God is telling us in his word, we got a problem. I've heard it said that the gospel is a pool so shallow a toddler can play in it in safety and so deep it could drown an elephant at the same time. No matter how deep you are, God's calling you deeper. That's kind of the idea. Don't matter where you're at. There is no uh, uh, feet limit to the pool. It just keeps going deeper the further you go into it. In my experience, what I've noticed, because you'll notice here, like, there's a relationship between learning and submission and reflecting. It's like I learned something. The Bible says meditate, ponder, reflect, sit in. Like good food in your mouth, you just let it sit there. And then when I reflect on it, I submit to what I reflected to what I learned. 
So what I've noticed in my experience in my own life and in the life of others is if I want to stop listening, what I do is, is I cut off the learning. Because if I'm not learning, I don't got to reflect, and then I don't got to submit to what I'm not reflecting on that I didn't learn. Are you tracking with me? So what, what I've noticed is we, we cut out the hearing, the listening, the work. We cut that, and we say, I got it, and then we're not submitting because we've cut out that. You, you see how those work in tandem with each other. So our flesh is deceptive. What we do is, is, I don't really need it. Let me cut it. And then inevitably, what ends up getting cut over the long haul is the submission because we've cut the learning, because we've cut the reflection, we've cut the sitting, we've cut the meditation. But friends, the Jesus you fell in love with is the one you'll continue to be amazed by and are invited deeper with. Keep submitting, keep learning, keep listening, keep trusting. And what's so cool, y'all, is when we sit with the Lord long enough, he will choose when you need the moment of intimacy that feels closer than other moments, because that does happen. There are times he grabs your hand, and there are times it feels like he's distant, even though he isn't. And we can trust if we just learn and listen and reflect and submit He'll choose when you need that moment. He doesn't want everyone who's ever read the story to try to recreate the moment. Everyone who reads it needs the lesson of the moment. Are you tracking with me? We don't need the transfiguration moment as much as we need the transfiguration lesson, which is listen to Jesus. We could trust him that he will bring the intimacy if we will submit ourselves to his process. So we've seen some glory. We've learned a lesson. Now we got a connection to make. We've got a connection to make. What is the link between the temporary glimpse of glory and then the download of the lesson to listen? What is that connection? Let's read what they talked about coming back down the mountain. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. Then he asked him a question, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Doesn't this make it seem a little more confusing? Like, that didn't help, you know? I thought this debrief would have been easy. Listen to me, guys. Start spreading the word. Radiant. Did you write that down? Bleach whiter than anybody could bleach it on earth. Go tell everybody, you know. He don't do that. He said, don't tell a soul till I come back. They're like, come back? What are you talking about? Come back. It's all going to be great, guys. Just make sure you listen to me. But if Jesus went that direction with the conversation, the disciples would have left hyper-focused on, I better listen, right? I, I better listen. They might have been looking at themselves, but that's not what happened. Instead, what happens is the conversation shifts from the lesson they learn to what Jesus is about to go through, and he forbids them to talk about it until then. You see, Jesus isn't force-feeding a lesson here. He's dripping some things that need to grow later. They aren't coming down the mountain like Jesus, we get it. They're lost in a bit of a fog, and they've got a question for him. And they ask about Elijah because they just saw Elijah, and they hear his name a lot in connection with Jesus. And he's like, man, don't worry about that. He's already come. They did to him whatever they please. And we know that that's John the Baptist, right? That's a big connection, Old Testament, New Testament. He already got his head chopped off. He's trying to say, this is happening right now, my guys. Like, right now, this is happening. He already came. He gone. And it just shows how much they're just lost. You know, they're just in a fog. 
And he's basically rhetorically saying, what do you think they're going to do to the Son of Man if they did that to Elijah? So what does the conversation coming down the mountain have to do with what just happened on the mountain? Why are, they, why, why are we going mopey-dopey, Jesus? Why are we talking about you rising from the dead? You, you the dude who was just transfigured. Like, what, what are you talking about? Why can't you just do that and the whole world see it and we're fine? Why can't you do that? What does Jesus want the disciples to be focused on? What's the connection? Y'all, what I love so much about the story is just how cool, calm, and collected Jesus is the whole time. He's just, he's just chilling. The debrief, he's coming down asking them questions. He's not anxious, you know what I mean? He's not like, guys, what were your takeaways, you know? <laughs> he was like, hey, man, don't tell nobody what you saw. No good and well, it's a fog over there. It's just a fog. They don't know. He's not anxious. Jesus is so thankful Peter recognized six days back that he's the Messiah, but he wants him to understand that the Messiah is going to the cross. He wants him to understand that. They just couldn't connect the dots from transfigured Jesus to suffering Jesus. They couldn't see how a king that glorious would have to go through something that miserable. I bet in some ways Peter was getting more confused while that happened. It's like, yeah, you're that guy. Why you got to go through what you're talking about? I don't understand. But instead of demanding that they get it, get it, Jesus assumes that they won't, talks to them like they won't, and trusts that one day they will. That's so often true in our walk with God as well. He's so patient with us. What Jesus knows is that although their listening will be important, only his mission is vital. Only what he's going to go through is required. You see, God's work of the world does involve our listening, but it requires Jesus' suffering. He knows no cross, no glory, no resurrection. None of it. Jesus wants to make sure that what they remember one day is that what he's going to do seals the deal, not what he's telling them to do. Are you tracking with me? You got an important role, but I got the necessary role. He doesn't demand that we listen or the mission will fail. He invites us to listen, knowing that his suffering will purchase their listening. This is such good news. He knows that his blood will purchase the victory. And the victory being sealed, the disciples get to carry forth something that's done. Jesus didn't mark, did not march down the field 99 yards and just say, here, you get the last one yard, go listen. He finished the deal. He sealed it. And what he wants Peter to understand, and us by extension, the cross and the resurrection were not like uh, uh, side notes in an otherwise victorious campaign of healing people and stuff. They are the epicenter of how he went about his victory itself. Otherwise, not just, why not just multiply what you just did? Go up in there and let everybody see it and we'll all follow you. It wouldn't be enough. The cross had to happen. Jesus doesn't demand that we get it or he withholds the future glory. He promises the glory they just saw. The transfiguration isn't a tease. It's a promise of something that's coming. He doesn't demand. He invites us in. We should listen to Jesus because he paid the price of us failing to listen to him. And he doesn't stand with demands. He invites to get on the finished work that he will purchase we are the ones who fail over and over. And he looks at us and says, this transfiguration right here is just a taste of the glory I'm going to give you one day. Just a taste of the glory I'm going to give you one day. And the way that that's going to come isn't through something you do. The bridge between where we are right now and where we're going isn't your listening. It's my suffering. What an amazing Savior he is. We don't carry the ball. He does it. This is the Savior that gives us a lesson but pays the price for our failure to live out the lesson he's given us. So amazing. Doesn't demand it. He invites it. He wants to give us a blessing, but he doesn't demand any string attached to it as a prerequisite for our reception of that. 
And this is such a good picture of the Christian life. This whole scene, we see something amazing. Our natural thought is, what do I got to do to get that? And we're invited into it. We're invited to take part in what he's done. But he wants us to leave knowing, I'm going to get us there. This glory is coming. And this glory isn't a reward for your good listening. It is a gift from my perfect suffering. This glory is a reward. It's not something you earn. And y'all, what this does is it makes us secure listeners. You know, I, I, I feel like in the Christian life sometimes, there's just an abiding insecurity underneath. We're doing the Christian things, but we're doing it at a distance from God, more focused on how well we're doing what he's asking us to do instead of focused on him as the one asking us to do it. Y'all, this story is all about inviting us into intimacy, not to create an insecurity of am I worthy to be one who gets what I just saw. He's trying to make it very clear that, y'all, I'm bringing you all the way in because of who I am, not because of who you are. You do got a role to play. You do have a role to play, but only mine will do what is necessary. And the reality is, y'all, many of us do not experience this kind of intimacy in our walk with God. And a lot of times, in my opinion, in my own life, when the intimacy is lacking, it's because my confidence is shook. I have no confidence about the basis by which I should be intimate. And our first reaction in that moment is to do something with us instead of grabbing hold of something from him. And this story is going above and beyond, over the top to say something glorious is coming. And it's a gift. It is not a reward. What's so cool for me to think about is Jesus walking down that mountain with them disciples. What is Jesus thinking about, you know? He's walking down that mountain, not like these guys better get it. He's walking down, just poking their brains. What y'all think? And they just start talking some nonsense. They haven't connected a thing. Y'all, Jesus was confident they listened because he was certain he'd suffer. He was so confident, not in the, the, I chose the right guys, you know? He was confident, I'm about to finish the mission. One they don't even understand. But I'm going to bring them in on that. So I know for me personally, this text, it just, it, it hits me in such a way where I got to ask myself the question, what is the source of my confidence? Is that I'm sure I'll be good at what Jesus is asking me to do? Because he does ask us to do things in the Christian life, right? These are the leaders of the church. Where's my confidence? What Jesus's confidence was in? Is it in his ability to finish it and to bring us in? Y'all, here in a minute, I'm going to pray, and I just want you to think about that this week. Is my source of confidence that I'm good at what I'm being asked to do? So we'll have high moments. Or is it I'm not good at what I'm being asked to do? I have low moments. What Jesus has done is intended to so secure something that it's so hitched to who he is and what he has done that our confidence doesn't waver in who we are. It's anchored to who he is and what he's done. We'll be better listeners if we look at him than if we focus on ourselves. Would you guys pray with me? Father, what a glorious scene you showed these three a couple thousand years ago. And Lord, sometimes it feels like I could, I could really use a really glorious moment, Lord. 
And God, you've done amazing things, primarily at salvation. God, you draw us to yourself. You make what once seemed so stupid to us, you make the gospel so sweet and so good. And Lord, I just pray for any of my friends in here who need a sense of your intimacy, like a, 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 a special moment with you, Lord. I pray you would give it. But Lord, we also pray over the mundane moments. God, that we would listen to you and trust you that you'll make it sweet. You'll make it intimate when you choose. And Lord, we can focus on listening to you, reflecting, submitting. And Lord, this glory is coming. A day where there's no sun. We're just looking at you. You're so glorious. So Father, I just pray that we would anchor ourselves to you. We would not look at ourselves. We would see the great length to which you've gone to make us confident in you. Thank you for your suffering, Lord. Thank you. Thank you that you finished it. Thank you that even on the day we don't get it, you still love us and invite us to listen. Father, I pray for anyone who doesn't know you. I pray for the day that they see you can bowl the 300 and they would see the humility. They would see the greatness. They would see the love, Lord. I pray even today that would happen to somebody under the sound of my voice. We love you. Praise in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.